Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Third Impact Anime Podcast, or the Third Third Impact Anime Podcast, if I can actually, you know, get that out properly. Um, I am the host, Austin, here, and I've got John with me. Hello. And I've got Tobias is back with us. I sure am. And Sully, too. I'm here. Woo! All right, and... um. This week, uh, we've just got mainly uh, some convention coverage to go over. Um, all of us, with the exception of John, uh, went to uh, Super Famicom this past weekend. And uh, we're going to be talking about that a little bit. And uh, But first, we um, kind of want to get out of the way uh, some of the really, really unfortunate uh, news in the anime community from today uh, related to the uh, creator of Rurouni Kenshin, uh, Nobuhiro uh, Watsuki. Um, earlier today, it was announced that he had been uh, arrested and pled guilty to charges of uh, owning or being in possession of uh, child pornography. And it's very, very heartbreaking for pretty much the entire anime community in the West and in Japan. Um, because there are a lot of, you know, very, very big fans of that franchise, and we really hate to hear that really, truly awful, awful news about uh, that individual. And it's going to be interesting to see how the, uh, you know, anime community handles that going forward um, as they, you know, currently are still dealing with the uh, the initial fallout of that. And kind of had wanted to have John on to, uh, you know, express some thoughts about that because, you know, if you guys had listened to our uh, review of the first two Roroni Kenshin films, uh, you guys will know that John is a massive fan of Kenshin and has been for a long time. So, yes, yes. so John, I'm I'm sure that this like this is this is this this sucks. I'm so upset. Ah, I mean, I love the series so much. It's what got got me into manga and anime in the first place, and like you know, just learning that that's what the creator had done just doesn't make his work any like less enjoyable or or devalues that but it does kind of leave a bittersweet taste in my mouth you know because like you just you kind of assume i guess that these people know better and it just kind of sucks that you know it's not not true and like with like all the like sexual allegations coming out like sexual assault coming out like whatnot yeah. i guess like good people too or what we thought who we yeah. thought were good people like it's just sad to see just another one go down yeah, it really is, and it sort of it opens up that broader conversation about like, uh, well, it's like it's the big question of that everyone kind of has on their minds. It's like, are we allowed to enjoy Roni Kenshin anymore? Some people will have different answers to that, and I'm I'm not sure exactly what that means in this context. I mean, to me, it doesn't make the work itself any less valued. I mean, if you've never read the series, then maybe mm -hmm. it may be harder to get into that knowing that. Mm -hmm. But exactly. It, for somebody who's already gone through it, I don't think it makes it any less magical or any less enjoyable. Maybe a little bit hard to go back to, but if you've already right. gone through the journey, like yeah, yeah. So I would um, say it certainly tainted, tainted, tainted that experience for sure. Mm -hmm. um, Sully, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I my personal opinion on, on most of these sorts of situations is that uh, media is always secondary to humans and. Um, I, it's a very sad thing to realize that someone that you thought was sort of a pillar of your community of, of, of this, of this, uh, style that you appreciate is indeed a very flawed, dangerous person. But I think 
ultimately, like I had told someone earlier, I would rather know this and be able to to speak on it and have everyone know to avoid this person rather than, you know, live in the sort of complacency. Um, I, I I always think that truth is is worth it in the end. And um, I, I, I've never really gotten into to Kenshin. It's not really something that was uh, something I had got into. So maybe I, I have sort of an outsider's perspective on this. But to me, it's just... It, it feels like it might be a long time coming because I think a lot of, of people in, in the entertainment industry and in both America and Japan are kind of shielded by their artistic merits. And I don't I don't think that's something that we need to continue allowing in any in any case, in any medium. Oh, yeah, like absolutely. Um, so it's it's definitely great that this information has come out and this individual has been exposed um, for these like truly, truly awful things that uh, he was a part of and he was, you know, precipitating. Um, so in that way, it's it's great to have that justice. I just know that this is very, very heartbreaking for, you know, literally thousands and thousands of anime fans out there. And, you know, this guy, I mean, this is on him. He should have known that. He should have been an adult and, exactly. you know, not participated in these, you know, awful crimes. Um, so, I mean... I guess that's all there really is to say, unless you guys had another thought or if you had any conclusion for that, John. Well, in this case, another thing to think of is that in 2017, it seems to be the the ongoing theme of, uh, you know, sexual allegations ongoing with celebrities. We have, you know, Harvey Weinstein just uh, a few months back, right. Kevin Spacey immediately after. And I think it's come to a point where, like, it's, you know, we're going to have to realize there's going to be a lot more of these coming forward. There's a lot more people that are, are more willing to come forward and name these, you know, these harassers. And right. as like nerds, as fans of things, we need to come to the realization that unfortunately we're going to get to a point where we're going to have to make the hard choice of appreciating our media or, you know, realizing these people are terrible. Uh, in my case, early this year, we had the whole issue with Nick Robinson of Polygon, and I was a really big fan of uh, his work on Carboys, the various video series he did. Mm-hmm. But when all that went down over that weekend, it's just, you know, it, it's it's disappointing. It's heartbreaking in a way to to see someone that you kind of considered a personal hero just has, has become a, a trash person. And yeah. you have to make the decision at that point, like, I haven't gone back and watched Carboys, and I don't plan on it. Unfortunately, I really cannot recommend that series as much as I would like to, based on the quality of it to other people. In in fact, uh, uh, in my Zelda panel, I used a small clip that Nick had taken of 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 a Breath of the Wild, and I I went ahead and clipped that out. I took it out and found new footage altogether for that, and, and unfortunately, it was a really fun, interesting clip. But you know, if I, I would realize that any time I would go back and watch that or give that panel, I would be reminded of, of this person and. I, I think we're at a point where, like I said, where as nerds, as fans, as otaku, whatever you want to call it, we're all going to have to make that decision probably sooner rather than later. Right, because this won't this won't be the last time that I think the anime community will have to deal with this. Because you know, exactly. if it happens in America, it also happens in Japan. If it happens in Hollywood, it happens in the anime industry. So it's just it's something we're just going to have to be ready for. And this this just happens to be the first one. And I think it's just like a bigger problem in society in general. We're just starting to kind of see like a, a boom in that since people right. are becoming more comfortable coming out with that and they're right. realizing they're not alone in this. Mm-hmm. So and I feel like. This is going to be a continuing trend, at least for like the next substantial while. And Definitely, I think it'll peak out eventually. So once all the allegations get out there, but it's going to take a little time. Yep. Yeah, yep. and I mean, it's, you already um, have enough. Here's Are a you? quote that um, 
has always sort of, of, of rang true for me is no man is an idol. Yeah. And I don't think that we should um, – and I, I'm not saying you shouldn't have heroes. You shouldn't have uh, figures that you aspire to be like or whose work has affected you. But I think um, realizing that in the end every single person is a human being and that yeah. means they can be capable of very um, destructive or um, harmful things – so in a way, I think if we all kind of hold on to that idea that, you know, someone that you mean, might look up to could not be everything you think they are, and that's okay. I've, I've had to learn that with uh, uh, not necessarily an anime, but there are some figures in certain groups that I'm in where I've had to learn. I might appreciate um, their work, but I know that as a person, they've done things that I don't approve of and I can't. I can't uh, condone and uh, fortunately these things have not been as extreme as the situations here, but I think that's something that we need to be mindful of. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And it's no really easy. An idol. Yeah. And it's really easy to use that sense of like celebrity to sort of use that as a shield against this criticism. A lot of these people use that as, as a threat almost to get to, you know, to go ahead and keep their victims quiet. Mm -hmm. And a part of that, you know, in this case, maybe he wasn't, you know, uh, Watsky wasn't maybe using that influence directly, but we see that a lot with these allegations. And you know, it's just part of that. Like you said, the people are human. People are, you know, maybe inherently or maybe not inherently, depending on your worldview, evil. And people are capable of doing terrible, awful things. Right, for sure. And it, and like, well, like we've kind of always been saying, it just opens up that conversation about like responsibility and fandom mm -hmm. and us being willing to like, you know, take those that we idolize and take them off that pedestal um, and realize, like you were saying, Sully, that they are human beings and are capable of of great things and also really, really inexcusable, terrible things. Um, and just, you know, being mindful of that. Exactly. All right. Uh, anything else you guys want to say about this? I think that about covers it for that subject. Moving okay. on to something a little more lighthearted and fun. Yeah, well, actually, before that, I'm going to ruin the mood again. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> just real quick, I wanted to plug this because it is super important for what we do and for so much of the anime community and just all communities online in general uh, that we are, in fact, having another net neutrality crisis. Oh, yeah. And um, I strongly encourage anyone out there listening to, uh, if you care about the Internet, if you love the Internet, which you should, um, definitely try and do your part to uh, contact your elected officials to uh, make sure that net neutrality stays in place so that we can continue doing what we love and you can continue, you know, doing whatever it is that you love to do on the internet and um, just preserving that community um, in the political sphere. Um, and I just wanted to get that out there and make sure that uh, we did everything on our platform that we could to, uh, to promote net neutrality as it is. Yeah. Uh, there's a site called battle for the net. Uh, if you're not sure what representative you have, you can give them their, your cell phone number and uh, they'll ask for your uh, zip code and they'll connect you with your uh, lo your local representative. Uh, try to do it during normal business hours. I try to do it after work today. Went straight to voicemail and their voicemail is full. I could not leave a message. So right. uh, try to get it during the day, during normal business hours. I know it's around Thanksgiving, so right now it's going to be a little hard. But right. Like from now until whenever they vote on it, which I think is like the 14th of December, something like that. Yeah. Call them mm -hmm. every day, bother them every day, let them know that you're passionate about this and that we love the internet the way it is. 
practice, right? And make sure to be nice too. Like the people, oh, yeah. like the nice. secretaries and all that stuff. Like you may disagree. I mean, I I disagree with my senators on innumerable issues, innumerable. But oh, still, yeah. like you need to be be a professional because if you're a professional and you conduct yourself in a in a responsible way, then you will get the feedback that you that you want. I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, at yeah, least in sure you know. to. To, to call, which I, I do, I recommend. Uh, there's also you can also email yes. senators, and that's it. Just make sure you 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 know use proper grammar and punctuation, and don't use any sort of words you wouldn't send your mother. Exactly. <laughs> Indeed. And, uh, apparently, it's been a tip also back when the the healthcare was a big deal. You know, six months ago. When you do leave the message, make sure to leave your name and where you live. Uh, yes. phone number zip code there's a lot of these get filtered through because they have a lot of people calling from all across the country trying to influence mm -hmm. votes so it's very important to leave a little bit of information to make sure they are aware that you are their constituent and that you do have that voting power indeed indeed and that their fate is in your hands yes. um all right well now we can finally move into fun stuff anime uh, where we can yeah, exactly anime and video games and all of that stuff so uh john i bid you adieu it's good to see you. Back to the abyss with me. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for stopping by, John. And he floats off like a gnome again. Indeed. <laughs> his gnomely ways. <laughs> um, so, now we can um, talk about him behind his back. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's still here. Just uh, silent in the background. But, um, so, I mean, I yeah, guess, this... But I guess in this case, before we move into actual convention talk, we just want to have, like, uh, like, hey, guys, what you playing? Oh, what yeah, sure. Watching? Yeah, sure. You want to go ahead since you brought it up? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I've been trying to watch a little more here because uh, I've really been kind of not watching anything the past few seasons, except for, you know, Little Witch Academia, which we certainly talked about at one point. Uh, but I've been catching up on Maiden Abyss and Land of Lustrous, or Land of the Lustrous. I'm not sure if that article is, is in the, the title. Uh, I haven't watched too much of either, but I've really enjoyed what I've seen so far. I really am glad to catch up on them. After they are after the run, so I don't have to wait week to week to to, to watch. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoy Land of the Lustrous and that it's a 3D CG anime that doesn't feel like really you know doesn't do a lot of skipping doesn't doesn't feel unnatural. The animation seems really fluid. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I've been watching a little bit of that myself. And um, I love the way it looks. I think I think the characters are very expressive. It, yes. We've definitely come a long way from uh, like season one of Knights of Sidonia, which I think yeah. was the first like like large scale CG anime that came out that people kind of paid attention to, even though it was kind of a flash in the pan in terms of popularity. Right. Um, but yeah, Land of the Lustrous looks surprisingly good. And um, so like I um, I picked up the first volume of the manga um at the used bookstore a couple weeks ago and tried to read it and i thought it was a little bit like this is just my personal taste but i thought the manga was a little bit too atmospheric um and a little mm. bit too um like the character designs were really difficult to distinguish because it was all black and white and if you watch land of the lustrous like most of the characters look pretty similar except yeah. their hair color yes. and that was extraordinarily difficult in the manga like i couldn't I it was very hard to keep track I can certainly see that color. I would say at least in the first episode I've seen, color plays a pretty large bit. Definitely, and the way that they do their hair, like the way that that's animated, is just—it's just great. It looks yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it does. Uh, like I was—I uh, think we said it mentioned this weekend, but 
Well, you can notice that the when the light filters through their hair, it does shine about their shoulders and in a very yeah. interesting way. Definitely, definitely. And um, I cut out for a little bit. So, uh, what other shows did you mention, real quick? Oh, that, 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 that was pretty much it. Just uh, Land of Lustrous and Maiden Abyss. I've watched the first three episodes so far. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy it. The character designs are really cute without being overly chibi. Uh, it like it, it it portrays kids pretty realistically. They're not afraid to kind of like uh, you know just talk dirty a little bit. Not like you know dirty sexual way, but mm-hmm. you know just without uh, without any reverence, I guess I would say. I got gotcha. you. Uh, yeah, and I, I just really enjoyed the design of like the architecture. Uh, seemed really interesting with the way that the whole city that it takes place is very vertical. Uh, I really enjoyed that, and really enjoyed the, the story. It feels very anime, but also really video gamey in a way. It reminds me a little bit of like a Cave Story, maybe a little bit of Undertale. Some of the design. Cool. Cool. I would, I would recommend it. Uh, Gamefront really haven't played much. Just kind of catching up on some stuff. But uh, I think maybe you finally convinced me to try some Kingdom Hearts here in a second. Heck yeah. <laughs> Probably I should actually give it a you know the good old college try. <laughs> and I'm debating which persona I want to pick up. Uh, I was going to do three because I kind of had it on PSP already sitting around. But I think I'm going to jump straight into Persona 4 Golden and play it on my Vita and work my way up into five. If you really want the down low on, uh, on Persona stuff, that is definitely a Tory question. <laughs> a Tory or Ryan or John, honestly. They're all big fans of uh, the personas, but uh, Sully, do you want to take over the uh, the same question? Like, what have you been uh, what have you been up to in terms of media consumption? Oh yes, so um, I I've caught up with the the new season of Osamatsu-san, and I'm enjoying it a lot so far. I think the humor is uh, I think they've refined the humor from from the last season. I enjoyed it a lot, obviously, but still, I think this is kind of like. It's a little more pointed towards the toward its own fandom now, and that's really enjoyable to kind of see it like poke fun at this sort of like craze they really did not expect to take off. Um, cool. I have also uh, to while away the hours during the day while I'm at home for the holidays, uh, watching the original Dragon Ball. I've been doing that for a while now, and that's kind of uh, very bittersweet now with the passing of Hiromi Sudo, who was the original mm-hmm. voice of Bulma. Um, sort of a, a sort of a you know sad going home sort of deal with it um and also still plotting my way through the 195 episodes of Odyssey Yatsura and the <laughs> six or seven movies and specials and all of that that I am you know obsessively consuming in in hopes that I'll finish my panel for it and Ooh. in terms of games um I have been playing Kingdom Hearts. I'm up to Atlantica. I haven't gotten actually, I haven't started Atlantica proper, but I've gotten to the like, okay, here you are, you're dumped in the ocean now, and it'll be really funny to see why everybody hates the level based on my favorite Disney movie. Um, <laughs> and then um, I've also uh, found out that I'm getting a Switch for Christmas, the reason being my mom does not understand how the internet works, and she's like, I was going to surprise you, but you're going to have to order your own present or else I won't be able to figure it out. Um, so excitedly, you know, waiting for that blessed moment, I can finally play Breath of the Wild, because I, like, anytime any of you have mentioned it, I've, like, immediately silenced you, so that I don't get spoiled in any way, I have blocked everything on the internet that would tell me anything about the plot, I have, like, gone out of my way to be left in the dark as much as possible, 
And, good, good. Uh, I think I will not be spoiled. So if any of you ruin that between now and December 25th, I will murder you in cold blood. I'm pretty sure Link is in it, but I don't maybe think that's a spoiler. Zelda? Yeah, maybe Zelda too. Yeah, possibly. We don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a new world and it's a new Zelda. Yeah. I mean, I would say for that, like going in unspoiled is the best uh, in this case. Like the story is is whatever. It's another Zelda game, but like when you actually set eyes to a new area for the first time and when you start to explore it, uh, I, I it's magical, man. I don't really know how to put it. It really is just a magical experience. <laughs> and because of that too, and kind of going into what we'll be talking about soon, I have been sort of like reignited with my passion to to play Nintendo games, and now I'm just like. I cannot wait for the Switch to get the virtual console because I'm probably gonna drop like like a hundred dollars on games that I just miss playing or that I want to revisit and I just don't have a hard copy anymore. Right. Cool. Well, um uh in terms of stuff that I've been watching, um I have been slowly but surely getting through a new game. And um, it's a show that came out a couple seasons ago, and uh, the second season of New Game just wrapped up maybe a few weeks ago, I believe, uh, in the end of last season. And um, it's this fairly uh, charming, fairly like vanilla uh, story about these this group of like office ladies who are all like in their mid twenties or something, um, and they're all working in this uh, game development studio. And um, it's it's nothing much. It's not quite as like um, heavy on the social commentary as something like Shirabako or Sakura Quest or something like that. But it's definitely right. in that same vein um, in terms of like content and the relationship between the characters. And um, I find it very refreshing and very, very chill and just enjoyable. It's a good show to just kind of put on and uh, sort of passively watch and then just get some enjoyment out of it. Um, there's that. And I've been, slowly making it through season two of my hero academia, which oh, I know I've, I know I've spoken to a little bit on this podcast about uh, how much I really enjoy uh, my hero. And it's a very, very fun show. And uh, my brother finished it up recently and he's way more into it now than, uh, than I am. And it's uh, great that he's got that, you know, new, new Shonen show to keep him coming back every week. And I know that they're um, going to be starting up season three, I think in like February or something I, like that. I, I think they said spring. I think it was just announced today. If I remember. Okay. Well, yeah, I saw it today. Yeah. That's like super soon. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad that that show is, uh, you know, still going on. And, uh, if the, uh, cause I can, I can notice really no significant quality difference between season one and season two. And hopefully <laughs> the, uh, same will be true between season two and season three. um, and uh, if you guys have checked out the website, you'll see that I have posted my first of my weekly series of reviews on Space Battleship Yamato 2199. Yes. And uh, I know, Tobias, you're watching that a little bit as well. Yeah, I started the first episode as well. I, the, sec the second one's already out, right? Yes, it is out, and my review on that will probably be coming in a couple days. Um, right. But it's like holiday time, so I don't know oh, exactly yeah. how much time I'll have to like sit down and, and write it. But I'm trying to keep those reviews fairly short because they are based on just like one episode. Yeah, single um, episode. Yeah, exactly. So I, I thought I would try my hand at, at writing in that format and we'll see how it goes. I'm probably not going to do that for every series that I watch because um, that for would sure. get very tedious. But yeah. um, I've enjoyed it so far. Uh, it's It's a show that I've been interested in watching for a really long time. Um, ever since I heard about like, you know, 
Yamato through like my research into like other shows that I really enjoy um, and other creators that I really enjoy and looking back at what their influences were and, and Yamato like always comes up. Um, so it's cool to see it. And I love the character designs. The world seems really cool. And um, yeah, just I'm very hyped for it. Yeah, I would say my only real complaint, at least for the first episode, was the CG, you know, in contrast with Land of Lustrous, didn't really look that good. No. I feel like, I feel like the movement of the ships was really, un, like, unnatural. Yeah. <laughs> it looked a little goopy, but I did really enjoy, the, like, the initial battle scene with the whole conclusion to that was just kind of, you know, tear-jerking. Yeah, it was. Um, it reminded me kind of like the beginning of Gunbuster. Yeah, exactly. For sure. And, um... Yeah, the the ships kind of they kind of move like big balloons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much a good way to put it. They were just balloons swaying <laughs> in the wind. Yeah, swaying in the winds of space. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of give it a pass because it was 2012, and Land yeah. of the Lustrous is like five years later. So right. you know, yeah. kind of sure. like we were kind of like I said earlier, like there has been a drastic you know improvement in CG anime in just just five years. So that's that's great to see because I feel like, you know, whether the community is ready for it or not or whether they want to accept it, like we will probably be seeing more and more CG anime just coming out in the next couple of years. And, and if they keep looking like Land of the Lustrous, I think people won't necessarily have a problem with that. Yeah. I mean, maybe not on the macro, but I'm sure there will always be people that in the very least. Yeah, I mean, it will be more uh, be more palatable, I guess, the the word to use there. We yeah. think of like CG anime. We think of like the new Berserk, which yeah. I don't think I would ever watch because of how terrible it looks. Which yeah. is kind of a shame because I, I kind of enjoy what little I've, I've read of Berserk, what little I've mm -hmm. seen, and I was really excited when they announced the movies, you know, a few years back. But mm -hmm. you know, looking at it and looking at the new series, uh, I'm not really going to do that. Speaking of Berserk, um, I did recently pick up uh, Berserk and the Band of the Hawk for the PlayStation Four. Mm, and yeah. uh, been playing through that, and um, I haven't gotten too far. I've gotten maybe through half of the first movie in video game time, I guess. Okay. And um, the game is very interesting. It's very much like a um, mission-based hack and slash, um, but it right. is like fully voice acted by the original. I think the original Japanese cast, and it's uh, like each mission is interspersed with clips from the Studio 4C movies. Um, and it's a great way to sort of like revisit the franchise if you didn't want to like like me, for example, I've seen those movies like two or three times all the way through like the whole trilogy. Right. Um, and that was awful for my health, by the way. <laughs> but um, like and and I enjoy Berserk, um, but uh, I have really no desire to want to watch those movies again. But playing this game makes me like re-experience those movies but in a refreshing and interactive way and the cg in the game looks so much like worlds better than the 25 the 2016 and subsequently 2017 uh tv shows yeah. so, it looks like an actual looks like an actual video game and not just you know just, just some television so isn't, yeah, isn't exactly. that made by the team that did dynasty warriors uh tecmo yeah it is it is yep so i imagine it plays a little something like that where you've got hordes of nameless foes and you cut them down that's exactly what it's like i mean i didn't i didn't want to say that because i wasn't really familiar with dynasty warriors because i never played it but uh that's exactly what it's like so I, you can yeah. vouch for that <laughs> yeah i think that i mean that pretty much matches the berserk because i mean if you read like the beginning of the manga the only little bit that i've seen he kind of does that with just like these these <laughs> evil creatures and just cuts them down with huge swaths of his sword oh yeah 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in terms of the gameplay, like you play it and you're just like, this is really dumb, but like Guts Guts's ability to just cut down his foes is also fairly dumb. But um but Berserk is, is a lot of fun, even with all of its horrible uh you know, gut wrenching and, and well, I mean I- content. I gotta ask because I mean I played I played Hyrule Warriors and that was really enjoyable. It you know the actual mechanic is like you said just kind of this dumb chopping down of enemies, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of uh, like tactical strategy as well with capturing bases and making sure that you know your, all your all your fronts are covered. So is that is that does that bleed through like in the Berserk game? Is there like a tactical aspect? Oh yeah, for sure, and there, it's definitely there. Like you've kind of got that sort of capture the base sort of style of gameplay, and uh, you can ride horses and all that. And I assume you can do the same in Hyrule Warriors, um, and uh, and I think that really works for the, um, especially for the band of the Hawk arc because like essentially that's what they do. Like they siege right. castles and they cut down you know hordes of of their you know enemies. Um, and it it really fits for the subject matter. Like this gameplay feels like like you're in a raid with the band of the hawk. Like this is exactly what they would have done. So it it feels very natural. Nice. And multiple playable characters too. Like yeah. so far, I've been able to unlock um, well guts of course, and Griffith, Casca, and Judo. It was interesting that he was a playable character because he's not. I mean, he's he's a prominent side character, I guess, but he's not right. like any in the main cast. Yeah. I, I mean, that's one of the things I enjoyed about Hyrule Warriors is, of course, you've got Link and, and Zelda and Sheik and Empa, but there's a lot of uh, like DLC characters you get, and even the characters you get unlocked through the game. Just these kind of side characters that they have to make this entire move set for, and it's actually kind of fun, and you know, it triggers my fan fiction, you know, love <laughs> to be able to go through some of these missions as like Empa. Uh, this badass big sword or even like ruto or, or even you can you can you can play a skull kid and in some of the stages and it's kind of fun to go back into these characters you wouldn't think of as being primary protagonist and playing these missions very cool all right well uh i think that completes our, our download of uh what we have been doing i suppose um if you guys want to move into con talk that's cool with me yep mm-hmm. cool so just in the in the spirit of uh, full transparency, before we get into talking about uh, Super Famicom, um, I actually am on senior staff for that convention, and um, because uh, the convention head is my my boss, both through Famicom and through my regular job, and um, Sully is also on on staff as a volunteer, and um, I just wanted to uh, just to throw out that. Uh, that disclaimer before we get into the the meaty details of Super Famicom. Uh, I don't think that that will cloud my uh, my you know, thoughts on the matter. I just wanted to make sure to to get that out there. Um, just get out ahead of that and make sure everybody knew where I was coming from. Um, so I guess we will first talk about the uh, the venue. Um, Sully, do you want to take that? Sorry, off um. there. I believe that the Elm Street Center is one of the buildings that Varelli uh, constructed for the three mothers where they could, you know, perform their pernicious witchcraft and torment the world. Because that's the only way that that building would make any sense to anybody as if it were constructed for black magic. <laughs> what, uh, what anime are you referencing, Sully? Oh, I am referencing, you know, the Three Mothers trilogy by noted uh, giallo Italian filmmaker Dario Argento, but I suppose all of us can only use anime references in this podcast, Austin. <laughs> so, uh, what's, <laughs> which season is that adaptation coming out? 
That's going to be winter 2018. I don't oh, remember that episode of Naruto. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the Elm Street Center um, and that whole um, building is uh, very, very confusingly laid out because it, it feels it feels like what it is, which is like two places. And there's definitely like a significant uh, divide. But maybe we, maybe we shouldn't ta- start there necessarily. Maybe we should talk about like what Super Famicom is. Yeah. Um. So Super Famicom is a um, our tagline is basically like we want to be a celebration of video game culture. And um, basically the convention is it's kind of like two things going on at once. It's like half uh, video gaming tournaments. Like we had a whole bunch of tournaments going on. It was mainly like Super Smash Bros, uh, Melee and Smash 4 and a bunch of other games too, like uh, Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite and Mario Kart and like Tetris and a bunch of other things going on. And then we had the other like the con- more traditional like anime convention style things about it, where we had like some special guests from the industry, um, and we had um, some you know some really great vendors and a whole vendor hall and then like fan panels and industry panels and all that stuff. So that's basically what Super Famicom is. And it t- took place in uh, Greensboro, uh, North Carolina this past weekend, which was November 17th through the 19th. And uh, Tobias, did you have anything to add about the venue? Uh, I mean, yeah, you can tell when you go in that it really wasn't made to be a what we think of as a convention center. Maybe what they kind of thought of as like a, you know, a, a sort of convention or a meeting space, I, you know, back when it was created, what, like probably like 100 years ago. <laughs> it definitely seems a little dated uh, here. And it is charming. Like, it really seems like it's a nice space. But you can really tell when you go in, like, they're really advertising this whole wedding venue uh, like aesthetic. And yeah, it definitely looks like uh, someplace that would be really awesome to host a wedding, a really, really nice you know, the ballroom upstairs was just really spacious and open and it was really just gorgeous. Uh, downstairs, not maybe not quite so much because everything was covered in, in video game detritus, but it still seemed like a fairly nice venue with that, you know, that large staircase leading down into the hall itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably wouldn't have been the best choice, but again, I don't know Greensboro too well. And uh, based on what they were saying in the feedback panel, probably was in fact the best choice for Greensboro. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was nice. It was cool to be downtown. It was nice to be not too far from a couple of really nice eateries and access to food. And I actually had the the, the bus station that I came in on was literally two blocks away. So that was really nice to be able just to walk over to it without worrying about transit. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that, on the one hand, it was really nice. On the other hand, uh, I'm, I'm kind of glad that they're not going to be returning to that next year. Yeah, it just it kind of makes the convention feel a little bit like broken up, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, moving to the new convention center, which is where an amazement is held. It's the Raleigh Convention Center. Um, I think that'll be a net improvement for uh, for the con in the future. I think that's a really great venue. Um, an amazement uses it really, really well. And um, I have a feeling like it would, you know, fulfill a lot of really great things that uh, Super Famicom really could use and benefit from. Yep, absolutely. My only real worry there, if we're going to talk about the RCC, is that I, I just don't know if it's going to like fill enough space and it's going to make it feel really empty. So I, I you know, for the past few years, I've been to Anime's Mad, and they, the entire convention center is full of of anime nerds from top to bottom. But I went to Playthrough Con uh, this past January, early February, 
and th that entire convention fit in one of those halls. So you had the rest of the convention center was very, very empty. It almost felt like a ghost town compared to anime's map. Mm. And uh, it, it was, it was okay. Like the actual, the, the convention in the one hall, like it filled up, but it was a little weird seeing everything in one space, mm -hmm. both the, you know, the, the vendors and the PC game area and the tournament things they were kind of running and the main stage was all in one area. There was a lot of sound bleed through, which wasn't too bad, I guess. I mean, it's definitely doable, mm -hmm. but it does kind of make me wonder a little bit about, you know, how everything's going to shake down for Super Famicom next year and how uh, they, they had mentioned they're going to try to work with the flow to make it so that the uh, tournament attendees are going to have to like walk through or walk past the vendor hall instead mm -hmm. of being you know, skipping right past it. So we'll see how the actual layout turns out. So you're the only one in the in the chat that has been to both Playthrough and Super Famicom, and they're both like video gaming conventions. So can you speak to some of like the similarities and differences between the two? Yeah, so uh, uh, Super Famicom was definitely more focused on tournament as being its primary deal. Uh, Playthrough had a larger mix of things gaming. So when you like, as soon as you go down the escalator into the hall, the first thing you see is the vendor area. And it was full of, there were a couple artists. Like I was there with my artist friend. There was a couple like board game vendors. Uh, there was a couple of developers showing off their indie games. So it was kind of a like an expo hall sort of deal. Uh, over to the right, they had some sort of truck that was streaming some games next to like a, a PC area where there was somebody trying to Twitch stream, uh, I guess, some events, some Overwatch or first person shooters or whatever. I don't, uh, it's not really my scene, so I didn't care. They had a large PC free play area, which um, honestly was a little weird because when you show up, you have to log into your Steam account and you would have to play your Steam games instead of having computers set up with a whole bunch of games. Which to me kind of defeats the purpose. If I'm going to like a free, a, you know, PC free area, I want to be able to check out a bunch of new games I haven't seen before. So it was a little weird. Uh, uh, right behind the, you know, going back to the left on the side, they had behind the the expo area, they had the main stage, which was just a stage with a projector and a couple of rows of chairs. Uh, across from that, there was a little retro area where they had a couple of NES classics. And some some of those retro consoles hooked up for people just to play whatever. And behind that, they had a little tabletop area. But the rest of the venue was just uh, a bunch of uh, tables and chairs for the concessions they had. Okay. So I yeah, I feel like there was a good mix of everything. Sort of uh, you know people mulling about there. It was also a Saturday and Sunday convention. But I feel like you know based on it's really hard to say because the the actual venues were so different in, in layout but i feel like super famicom probably had more people just in, in the tournament side and it's going to be interesting to see like how they divide that up i'm sure it won't be a problem but again noise could be an issue with a lot of crossover with the tournament attendees and the main stage or multiple main stages depending mm -hmm. so it'll be interesting to see if, if super famicom actually can get some of the rooms upstairs for the fan panel rooms but then again, we have the issue of if you're trying to separate the convention, if if they do that. Right, right. On the other hand, if they decided to get one of the large ballrooms uh, on the upstairs area, I think that would be interesting to maybe like get both of those up there, maybe have one the vendor area, the other the tournament area. And that way that, you know, they're still separate rooms, but they're right next to each other. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that um, that uh, we'll definitely 
keep that in uh, in consideration and, and make sure that we, you know, like you said earlier, uh, like was said at the feedback panel, like make sure to sort of like funnel the people through in a in an effective way to gets that gets people, you know, interacting with the vendors as they get, you know, toward the tournament area. And I think that's a really good good way to to do it. Like like uh like my boss said, sort of like make them exit through the gift shop, that kind of mentality. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I think that would help. For sure. Um, so I guess we can talk about the dealer's room. Um, Sully, did you see anything in there that really tickled your eyes? Uh, the one thing that I saw at the dealer's room that made me happier than anything was those uh, quilted pillows done mm. in Nintendo motifs. Yes. And uh, the uh, my favorite was the Koopa Clown Car one. It was oh, just yeah. it it made me so happy, and yeah. I, I just was not. I, I was not in a position to to make that sort of purchase that day, but um, it just it just it made my day. I just would go in there and pass by it just to look at it, admire, it, and point it out to others. Um, I the dealer's room was kind of fifty fifty for me. Um, there was there was a lot of, of a lot of uh, vendors such as uh, Limited Run and Lost Ark, you know, our local video game store of choice. And like I said, uh, some of the artists, like the person making the pillows. And then there was some where I was just like, um, I'm gonna, this might be me being someone who just is really into like, you know, spotting things. But like, I'm getting kind of sick of at cons in general, seeing like these cheap eBay, like, like the Pokemon badge sets that are not official in any way. They're not the Gachapon gym leader badges they're just the the cheap enamel badges that are sold on ebay you can get the whole set for ten dollars and they'll sell them for fifty dollars as a set in a dealer's room and i think that's incredibly exploitive because no one really knows how most people don't know how to look and see if something's fake it's the same with those uh earrings that are enamel and they're made out of like stock art i know that the tuxedo mask one isn't even art of tuxedo mask it's a picture of the petite cara figure of him that was just like turning the stock art and then like made into an enamel pin to hang on an earring awkward think, what yes and they they're everywhere and it drives me crazy and i know that pointing them out at this point doesn't do anything and it's not going to do it to the vendor because one either they're not the person or two they're going to get belligerent with me but i when i whenever someone looks at them i sway them away because i might know this is cheap you're not supporting the official release and it's not even good fan art because it's not fan art it's something that's mass produced in a factory and some idiot buys it up and then slaps it onto a cheap earring card and sells it to you at a like 80% markup that's that's I, I I cannot deal with that and it just it's not really something Famicom can can do necessarily because you can't bet every vendor you can't go and like turn over everything they sell but like I just really do not think that vendors rooms are something that's going to have much presence at cons for a while i mean they will because they're just part of the culture but like if if from what i'm hearing is true from friends who who vend stuff it's just not really being profitable anymore because of the internet yeah and i think what you're, you're speaking to sort of a much larger issue that has probably that has kind of been an issue in the convention culture probably forever which is you know people not stopping selling non-official merch and um seems like you find that literally everywhere you go and it's always kind of like irritating to see especially if you 
you know, have ex- more experience and you kind of know what to look for, it can be a little irritating. Yeah, and my thing is, like I said, I just, right now my my sort of, like, policy is just to point it out and be like, this isn't real, you shouldn't buy it, and I, I really wish there was something better I could do. Mm-hmm. But like I said, there were good vendors there, there were decent artists there, there were good artists there, there were some where... Uh, I would say late stage capitalism at work, my friend. My roommate <laughs> says all the time. <laughs> oh my god! Making a bunch of plastic. <laughs> was pointing out um, the setup for the like the actual space is good for the dealer's room, but like like we said, like no one was going up there. I I you know total honesty have little to no interest in Smash competitions. And so I really felt there was, like, this weird sort of, like, the foyer of the center was, like, this liminal space that you sort of floated in and Mm. out of. And you would either go to Tournament World or Vendor World. Yeah. Because, like, I I wasn't – I had no plans to buy anything that weekend. And then I also had no interest in in Smash competitions. And there were no cosplayers. They were, like, I could count on my hand the number of cosplayers I saw there. So, like, I felt like I had no reason to be there sometimes. Like, even though it was labeled as a con, it was more of a a tournament, like, tournament in capital letters with some convention. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way, and I I feel like a lot of that sort of thing can be remedied with the venue change, especially if we're able to use the new venue to our advantage. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, stick all that stuff in the blender and sort of mix it up a little bit. And uh, make sure that, you know, everybody is involved in everything. And we sort of, you know, force that through the way that we, uh, like, set up the venue. And I think if we do that effectively, it's like that feeling will be a lot, a lot dampened, I guess. Right. I mean, my worry, though, is that the sort of uh, attendees that are going to be coming are going to mostly be interested in, in the tournament. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's like, I feel like you can't necessarily advertise a con and keep calling it a con when really it's a tournament with a vendor's room and some panels. So, so I, mean, I would say in that regard, like, you've got two issues there. Like, on the one hand, yeah, it is a tournament, a tournament event first. Uh, I, I, if, I, if I recall, uh, Austin, you were saying this is the second year Super Famicom's been on? Yes, correct? year two. And there really wasn't, yeah, there, was, there really wasn't much, like, convention content last year. And uh, yeah, I feel like it's kind of a ship. So you're going to have this really awkward teenage phase like now where you're trying to realign into being a full experience. So I, I can understand that. I can understand those growing pains. Uh, and I can understand that because of the way the venue is set up, it's really hard to filter through. But I feel like we have a situation where you have to you know, exit through the gift shop. You're going to make a lot of impulse purchases. So there was a lot of merchandise in the dealer's hall that was catered to smash. One of the first things you do when you go in is there was a, a, a person selling Perler art that was just Smash characters and sprite art of different Smash characters. And I feel like you know, little things like that would appeal to people. I saw a lot of people with art of their favorite characters. I saw them with those little enamel pins the Super Famicom was selling with the the art that the uh, you know, artist, the commission artist had done. So I feel like there's give me a lot of representation, a lot of crossover there, especially when we talk about impulse buys to that regard. But and I, I think, think year, my worry with that is then does it just become a huge, like, like you said, a gift shop? I, I, a con to me is more than just a place to go buy things. 
Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to, I mean, in this case, we're talking specifically about the dealer's room. You're going to have people, just like at anime cons, they're going to sell you know, little tchotchkes of your favorite characters, whether they're cell phone charms or, you know, body pillows. Not like any one of us would ever buy a body pillow. But, uh, <laughs> you know, things that are, you know represent your favorite characters, your waifus, your things like that. But you're also going to have the, you know, the people that like Discotech that sell the, you know, the really good stuff, the hidden gems. You're going to have the people that sell the models in the background that are, you know, $100, $200. You know, the other whole Gundam model kits, things like that. That may not appeal to the first-time convention goer, but for the people that are there for that specific merchandise, you know, we'll still be there. And I think one thing that Famicom kind of nailed pretty well this year was getting a bunch of vendors that had a lot, like a large selection of of, of video games, uh, like from all eras and in very good condition. Like, of course, we had Lost Ark, like we said, in there. And they're uh, they're good friends, and they they have a lot of really great stock too. But there were a lot of other vendors that were. Um, there with their big like vast game collections and yes. I was looking through some of those and you know I'm not a video game collector per se myself like I buy the games and keep the games that I really like um, but I was asking around to one of the guys and he was um, he um, like one of his products wasn't labeled and he and I asked him about it and he's just like all right well let me let me check online real quick and see what this is going for and then he checked online and he's just like oh it's going for twenty dollars so I'll sell it to you for twenty dollars and I'm just like oh that's great um somebody who's not trying to like ridiculously upcharge you on you know getting this out of print game or something like that he's going to give you a fair deal and I thought that was really cool and um, right. in addition to that there's a vendor that has been at Famicom for the past two years um called um Stangboy customs and um mm, yeah. they are um they're a really unique thing um and i haven't seen them at any other convention that i can recall um but they essentially make and repair uh game boys from all eras like the original game boy the game boy color game boy sp advance etc and they will um like like parse them out for parts and like they will sell you kits so that you can build your own Game Boy, and they well, can sell really you, like, let me let me get a buddy because I'm kind of a little knowledgeable about that. Okay, what they're doing is they're actually doing mods for Game Boys. They're not letting you like build one from scratch. So like one thing that you'll see a lot of in the shiptune communities is backlight mods because the original screen of the Game Boy doesn't have anything like that. Right. So using backlight mods and all sort of you know crazy neon colors has been very popular with chip tuners and even people just looking to you know. Like, you know, up the experience of playing on an original console. Mm-hmm. So they had that. They had like case mods that I didn't see too many, too, too anything like out of the ordinary there. But you see a lot of people that will paint them or put character art or decals, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. on their outer case. And then on the screen itself, there's a cover that's got the actual Nintendo Game Boy logo. And they were selling a couple of the variations of the Pokemon games and the Pokemon consoles that had come out, and there were probably some other art as well. Uh, yeah. But to that degree, like I would, I would, I would agree for the most part. Coming from a an anime con experience, I've kind of gotten used to do those rooms being very samey. But seeing things like that, just kind of like kind of amazing. They would just be there on the show floor and showing these these you know if I've used the term loosely normies, you know these really interesting you know interesting mods like that that you really kind of only see online in very specific uh, you know modding scenes. Uh, any conclusions to dealer room talk? I mean, just to kind of uh, expand upon that, like coming from uh, an anime experience and seeing the same artist in North Carolina over and over again, I saw a lot more variety than I'm used to. 
Uh, you, you mentioned the huge catalogs of games. Usually at Anime Cons I see, there's usually one or two shops that mostly do imports of Japanese anime games and specific fighting games. But there were a lot of people that had a bunch of retro consoles still in box. So it was really awesome to see like an original uh, Mega Drive and Master System complete in box. Uh, original 64 and 64 and Super Nintendo all completely there, just like they you know, were back in 1994 or whatnot. <laughs> uh, you the, the artists I thought were really interesting as well. Like Sully mentioned, the, the quilt and pillow. And that was, I mean, it sounds really basic to say it, but you really have to look at it because some of the choices in fabric were just like gorgeous absolutely gorgeous they were Somebody, wonderful yeah yeah they really were i wish i <laughs> i probably could have sprung for one of the pillows at least but i you know it's a good thing i did my wallet would have cried out in pain doing that but uh, even just the print artist i felt like were really interesting they're just things that i haven't really seen done before there was a mix of anime and gaming uh there was one group studio pimpin that had like canvas paintings of video game scenes so they had like the map of Zeal from Chrono Trigger that just looked amazing. There was a scene from uh, Shovel Knight that almost looked like it was taken from the game itself. But when you take a, you know, if you actually take a look at it, it it's completely hand done. And that was uh, like a step up, a step up in quality that I don't usually see uh, doing the normal anime convention circuit. Cool, cool. All right, you guys want to move into guests? Yeah, sure. Cool. Um, so we had a, we had a very, uh, like a kind of interesting, uh, swath of guests. Again, it was kind of divided into like tournament guests and then like, uh, convention guests, I guess. Um, we had a lot of like top smash players, uh, flown out, um, from all over the country. And, um, I think one guy was from Canada too. And, um, apparently the, um, the smash community and everybody had a lot of great things to say about the folks that we grabbed and they were all like very very popular within their community even though that's not something that i personally really pay much attention to um i think if i recall correctly we had the guy that was um like top smash player in the world right now there uh, i think his name is um hbox i believe is his name okay. and we had a whole bunch of other like very very highly ranked smash players to come to either compete or to just be there and commentate and um, I don't know. I thought that was really cool. Like that's like like kind of like what Sully said. It's Smash is also not my scene, even though I see you know why people would be interested in that. Um, it's just not something that I'm personally super in, into. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. It's really cool to still see that these important people are showing up to our little thing in Greensboro. Exactly, it's very cool and helps you know get the get the North Carolina on the map. Uh, in more ways than one, I suppose. Yeah, and, and specifically um, it helps helps with Super Super Famicom on the map. Oh, for sure, yeah. And um, on the con side, we had uh, some some more industry guests. Um, probably our top build guest was uh, Luke Edwards, who is the actor that plays the main kid in the movie The Wizard. And um, Sully had Sully, you'd seen The Wizard before, right? You'd seen it. Yes, I had. Okay, well, I hadn't seen it, and neither had Tobias until this weekend, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, and we went to the screening on Friday, and um, and uh, Luke Edwards was there, and he did a Q&A afterwards. And I thought that movie was, like, really charming. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as I had been led to believe. Like, typically, whenever I hear something was done by Rift Tracks, I <laughs> tend to get this, like, connotation that if I don't watch the Rift Tracks version, I'm going to, like think it's really really bad or something like that but um i found it very charming and it was weirdly um 
like relevant to now because it portrays competitive video gaming in a way that is not too dissimilar to you know what it is like now and um it's just a really you know solid movie i thought i mean it's not got the greatest story but if you're interested in like video games at all if you grew up with like the nes or just have an appreciation for nintendo um it's definitely something worth checking out and and luke was a really really nice guy um i got to spend a little bit of time with him just talking about uh his work a little bit and um that was really that was really cool he had a lot of positive things to say about his experience uh working on that film yeah um i would yeah i've always been led to believe the wizard was being one big nintendo commercial and not to say there wasn't a lot of product placement but when you also compare it to the whole Nintendo or Mario Mania that was very present back in the late 80s, back with the, you know, the release of the console, it makes a lot of sense. And sure, the story wasn't you know Shakespearean in nature, but it was more than a commercial, I thought. Yeah, definitely. Like, it has its own characters. It has its own story. Like, the characters have backgrounds, and it doesn't feel like... It doesn't feel like the world revolves around Nintendo in this movie. It's like yeah. the game tournaments is just like a part of the narrative, but it's still about the characters, which, you know, any good movie is is more about the characters than the uh, than the story or whatever. Yeah. Well, as I explained in my panel, uh, the, the <laughs> Nintendo was not exactly like thrilled to give you know universal their license in fact they weren't even the ones that want the power glove in this was this was pretty much written as we need we want this video game mute movie because it's really popular right now hey nintendo can we say it's your games and they're like sure why not <laughs> i mean i don't know about you Sully, but i would totally go see the wizard on ice oh, oh my god dear. <laughs> <laughs> imagine in the whole like final scene at the like the video armageddon but it's all like an ice capade style Musical. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will lobby for this. Start a petition right now. Kickstart it. Yes. <laughs> I'm we'll sure get, we can uh, get Luke Edwards back. <laughs> yeah, get him back to play the same character. <laughs> On ice. On ice, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Um, but yeah, that movie was super charming, and I'm glad I watched it. And yeah. um, some of the other guests were also really, really cool. Uh, we had... Um, Patrick Thorpe, who was the uh, who is was currently the uh, editor at Dark Horse, uh, responsible for a lot of their Nintendo uh, video game art books and encyclopedias. Probably his biggest claim to fame that people would know him from would be the uh, Zelda encyclopedias, namely Hyrule Historia and Arts and Artifacts and stuff like that. And uh, Tobias, you had some pretty meaningful react um, interactions with Patrick, so uh, I'll t I'll let you take that. Yeah, so I mean, I would I would hope I had a meaningful interaction. I, I moderated his panel on exactly. Saturday. Sounds pretty meaningful to me. History, <laughs> the uh, his, yeah, the history of Hyrule, and uh, yeah, with that, I like I wanted to see. My deal is I go to anime conventions and as you see Q and A panels, and it's like the fans don't generally have great questions for a guest. So I really wanted to kind of lead that conversation rather than turn it to the floor really quickly which is something I, I I think I had like 10 minutes at the end for questions for the audience members, but it wasn't intended to like lock anybody out. But on the other hand, I've, I've kind of seen the crappy, uh, you know, a crappy question people ask. Uh, You're preaching to the yeah. choir. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we, we just kind of talked about his, his early influence there. You know, he mentioned that the fond memories of the, of Zelda itself. And I went in not knowing if he was going to be like a hardcore dyed in the wool Zelda nerd, or if he was just kind of doing this as part of a job. 
So I wanted to keep things a little professional, like to ask him about the editing process, ask him, you know, how about, about how to getting materials and the translation process, because I kind of skimmed uh, the Internet in preparation to see some of the, you know, some of the things that they had went through. But even at the end, I mean, he was answering questions about the timeline to people in the audience and solely asking a question about puns and, and, and like the actual play on names for some of the characters. And he was able to answer those in stride without taking a break, without really being awkward about you know, fans asking something that really wasn't his purview. Yeah, but it was really cool to hear sort of from a firsthand experience from an actual industry guest, uh, you know, the process behind creating this this gorgeous art book. Definitely, for sure. And um, I got to speak to him a little bit at his table um, after all of his panels were over on uh, on Sunday, I believe. And um, he's just a really genuinely nice person to talk to. Very fascinating, very personable. Um, and you can tell that he really has a passion for for this sort of work and sort of, you know, getting all this information, you know, chronicled and uh, put out there for the fans to enjoy. I um, did not speak to him in his table, mostly because I was too nervous. But uh, kind of outside of Zelda, if I could even speak of such a thing, uh, he he spoke on getting into publishing like after college. And that's actually the thing I want to do is either, you know, go into academia or go into book publishing because I, I love books. And hearing him speak about that and the sort of process it was, it was very sort of helpful for me. I was kind of like, oh, once again, Zelda provides provides me a life answer <laughs> so i really appreciate that and i was like i'm not going to go bother him there's probably like a ton of other fans oh, you should have I, you absolutely I, should have <laughs> I, and i didn't want to be like so i know you're talking about zelda but like can you tell me like, can you like give me actual life advice even though you don't know me and probably have absolutely no <laughs> accreditation to do so because like you do books and i want to do books and they don't have to be about zelda they can or cannot i just like books please help me <laughs> so uh and he like i said i love puns in japanese that's one of my favorite things about any language is the nuances of humor in language that don't necessarily translate into english so i really liked asking that question getting an answer because the answer usually is you do the best you can and try to keep it as close to the spirit as possible and I don't want to be like elitist in any way, but I was like, oh god, there's so many of us over then like asking questions about the timeline. He's he doesn't make the timeline; he just translates what they tell him about it. Like, uh, it was it was it was an interesting panel, but I had so much fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say. I mean, you should have went up to go see him at his desk uh, or his table. I went up there and just kind of going around. I really went up there to purchase Sean Irwin's book. But uh, he just kind of like slid me the Japanese copy of the encyclopedia that not even out yet. And he kind of like flipped through and sort of translated some of the sections for me. And it, I'm I'm hyped for it. It looks like a really awesome, you know, expansion of what Hyrule Historia could have been as far as going into the Zelda lore. And I'm I got so a chance excited to... for that book. But here's, yeah. here, here's I'm going to say something controversial on this podcast. I want to get the blue standard edition, and I don't want to get the gold Zelda cartridge edition. Yeah, no, I I, I like that. Uh, I like having the the color. It looks like an an actual old old tome, and, and it, think... it matches the the goddesses theme. And I honestly yeah. think that 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 uh, gold cartridge cover is one of the tackiest looking things I've ever seen. Yeah, I gotta agree with you there. Like, I like the fact they're doing it. I like the work they put into it. But on my bookshelf, no. Yeah, yeah, some people are going to be like, yes, I want this. And other people are going to be like, no, I want the other thing. And yeah. um, it's just good to have that option out there. I mean, I think both are equally cool in their own way. 
um one for the more like you know aesthetically pleasing like uh uh bookshelf layout i guess yeah. and then the other one is just like a, a really cool novelty so they well, both have like pros and cons i will say he went out, he talked over the special edition and apparently like he really wanted a really uh, authentic tactile experience so the actual slip cover is made of the same material that the original nes cartridges slip covers are made of <laughs> and like if you ever really like like you know had those back in the day like i can i can feel the way that feels right now just in my mind's eye I, I, like the cartridge itself, he said he really wanted to get that tactile experience with the little grip on the, the top part of the cartridge. And I think if nothing else, that's really cool to, to know that they're doing that. Don't Even you mean it probably won't your, be. Don't yeah. you mean in your in your mind's hands? Yeah, my mind's hand. Uh, <laughs> not a term I think I should use a whole lot on an anime podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, like I, I thought that was really cool in the very least that they really went for that authentic experience. Mm-hmm. Even though I probably won't be... Uh, you know purchasing it myself i got gotcha. uh, yeah like i went up there and he showed me the encyclopedia the japanese version it kind of flipped, showed me through some of the sections and i'm really hyped for that and mm-hmm. uh i got to look at the art of splatoon book which he also uh edited and that's also incredibly gorgeous splatoon has some like really great graphic design with a lot of the logos and the characters and the weapons and it's just chock full of all of those and concept art that's just like as a as a fan of splatoon as casual as I might be, this is a really gorgeous book that I probably will actually pick up now because of that. It's got some serious splatitude. It does indeed. One might even say ink credible. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta stay fresh. Hey. <laughs> um, so I know I kind of threw you into the wolves on this one and you didn't really know what to expect, but I, I think that you came out alive on it. So what was moderating uh, uh, writing the history of video games like? It was it was great. It was it was definitely a great experience. Uh, like you said, you kind of uh, about an hour before, right after, uh, right after my Pokemon panel, I think Tori like approached me like, "Hey, by the way, you're going to moderate this other panel." And I was, uh, uh, "Okay, sure, yes, I'm doing it. I'm doing the thing." <laughs> and uh, so I had like an hour to come up with some basic questions. They probably weren't, uh, you know, the, uh, the best questions. Probably weren't the best uh, organized for time. I, I rarely ran low on time with some of the things that I wanted to ask, but I was able to uh, you know, moderate the panel with Patrick and then Jeremy Parrish of Retromots and you know games journalism fame and John Irwin, who was uh, the other guest. He's a, a teacher, educator, and a commentator on uh, you know, video games and video game culture. And specifically, he was there to talk about his book on Super Mario Brothers 2, the, uh, our Doki Doki Panic, as they call it in Japan. Uh, so yeah, I got to sort of moderate their panel. We just kind of talked about uh, some of their early influences, what really inspired them to make the jump from just enjoying games to making it their career or, you know, writing about them. Uh, I asked them some of the challenges they had, uh, to which they were all responded that Nintendo has been the biggest challenge they've had. Uh, Patrick <laughs> and the, you know, Patrick and the, the question and the, with regards to getting material for the books, which I mean, as anime fans, if you, if you sort of follow any of that, development and localizing process getting japanese companies to give you material to localize is incredibly difficult for some reason well, and, i mean uh, i can understand them being like they kind of they're very they seem to be very very protective of their ip because they have been like burned so many times uh, over the years and i know i know solo you did a whole panel on basically <laughs> like you could call it like nintendo getting burned and change nothing and your panel would be about the same about the same. They yeah. they got smarter as as the as the new millennium showed its face. 
either Nintendo getting burned or Nintendo putting their hand on the stove. <laughs> I mean, that's that's probably the best way to put it, honestly. I mean, Nintendo, <laughs> Nintendo is one of my lifelong obsessions as both a company and their characters and their worlds and their stories. And I can tell you one thing is that uh, they've always been very reluctant to give anyone their IP. And every time they have, it has ended terribly. All right, Illumination. You've got your... Uh... I, I, I hope the best. I hope the best. I expect I expect the same level of entertainment I got from the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, but I hope the best. I hope the same level of entertainment as you got from the Minions movie. I have never watched those, and I'm oh, proud you were of so you, yeah, you were so lucky. Well, like, let me let me let me play defense real quick. Like whenever the first Despicable Me came out, I honestly thought that movie was like really really good and really funny. And the minions at the time they worked for me because they were playing off the uh, they were playing off the straight man of Gru, and uh, you know you, it's the same reason why you know that Jimmy Neutron Sheen spinoff show didn't work because Sheen was supposed to be the goofball to play against Jimmy and Carl who were like the other characters um, archetypes, but the minions don't work on their own and then Universal needs to stop trying to make them work on their own because they don't you work on their they own. Work. They work because they are the perfect, cute thing. They are small, round, and yellow, all positive connotations in the human mind. And that's why every white Facebook mom uses memes of them with their hands in their pockets yeah. to say how sassy <laughs> they are. I will disagree with you on everything except their color. Yellow is repulsive. I believe <laughs> that. However, psychology disagrees with me. Ugh. <laughs> All right, well, we can end the minions discourse. <laughs> yeah, I don't I mean I don't think that all like the, the humor I mean, do you, you have an opinion on that? But I don't think the humor is going to bleed over so much as the actual uh, technology behind the animation. That, that's really what as long as they make it feel like Mario, as long as Mario doesn't really talk much uh, much, you know, outside of some basic exclamations and mm-hmm. runs. Uh, well, I when think... they did the, the Kirby anime, Masahiro Sakurai said Kirby cannot talk. And so the challenge was, well, how do you have a show about a character that does not talk? And here's the thing. Most of Nintendo's characters don't speak a lot. Link is basically mute. Mario only has a few little catchphrases. And Kirby, you know, just says Poyo for everything. And so the challenge is having those characters be defined not by their words but by their actions and by what other characters say about them or to them i will say oh go ahead go ahead oh and and i think that the little bit of breath of the wild i have seen i i have heard zelda's voice and i I like it i i like it i know link doesn't talk and i think that kind of works when you have the main character is speaks through his actions and again through other characters and i think that if they do something like that it's a challenge but it can work because as much as i like charles martinet i can't see him voicing an entire like scripted performance uh he had done that before with mario they had you know the very first interactive mario head did that but in a movie i just don't see that because to me mario is still jump man mario doesn't talk he jumps I would I would say if they don't get Charles Martinet, they should get Danny DeVito to be Mario. Absolutely. I mean, they almost did imagine <laughs> such a world. Imagine. <laughs> Man. All right. Well, uh, any other meaningful uh, guest uh, things? Like, um, there were a few um, 
artists there that had worked on the uh, Sonic the Hedgehog and Mega Man comic books. And uh, I didn't really get a whole lot of uh, you know, interaction with them, but uh, they seemed they seemed pretty cool. And yeah. I, know. I, mean, I, th- I think I'd seen uh, one of them uh, at a couple of conventions before, so I've, I've kind of seen them around. Mm-hmm. If they had gotten some actual developers there, I probably would have been a little more interested. As uh, the Sonic comics are a part of my childhood, but one I, I, I think I would rather kind of leave in that era. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who read the Archie Sonic comics, and when he explained them to me, I just sort of stared at him for a long time and i was like are you sure you didn't just didn't have like a fever dream as a child and some bizarre mutated looney tunes story just didn't you know grow up from your brain but no it's all true and apparently like some guy sued like sega like for the rights to knuckles because he wrote knuckles as a comic book character and now he has like exclusive rights to knuckles as a comic book like something like that and it's just so bizarre to me what yeah i don't know like i know i I've probably gotten a lot of facts in that story mixed up, but Mark, like, look it up, Google it, and that is an actual thing that yeah. had been told to me, and I did not believe it for a minute yeah. until I saw it with my own eyes. I mean, I don't know that story in particular, but I've heard some stories, and I don't want to you know, begrudge anybody their fandom, but it's definitely something I would like to leave in my childhood. <laughs> um, to go back to guests, um, I don't know if they were featured guests, but Limited Run Games was... Oh, yeah, they were. A very interesting group to have. I was very, you know, intrigued by their whole like the criterion of games. And like me and Austin discussed, they they aren't exactly that, but still, I think they hold an appreciation for the medium that kind of is similar to something like Criterion, in that they really do see games as art, and the, all of it needs to be archived and preserved so that we can learn and experience it the way it was meant to be and i really appreciate that sentiment for any for any form of art and it kind of answered the question for me i was thinking should i start getting you know exclusively digital downloaded games and when i was informed uh, by then the ways that games can just like vanish off the face of the earth i thought oh no never mind bad idea terrible idea do not do this right and um yeah, the, their whole business model is is great for both and, and for a couple reasons because you know it gives the fans something like truly unique and if like if you have a limited run game like as part of your collection, it's like that's a really special piece because they are in fact part of a limited run. Like they are not going to, you know, keep printing their games into infinity um because that's just how they're, they're they've set up their company. And um and it's also neat in a, you know, video game um sort of uh what's a preservation attitude because uh, they said that they do hold on to copies of like every single one of the games that they make and they send you know a few copies to the video game museum and have been holding on to a horde of all of their releases to eventually send to the library of congress so that you know in within their power and what they can do depending on their you know abilities and their and their resources and the licensing and all that sort of thing they are making sure that certain games that you know may otherwise not be um, be preserved make sure that they are, and uh, I think that is a really responsible thing. It's a great thing to, to uh, for them to do, both as uh, fans and as a and as a business model. It's really really cool. Absolutely, absolutely. I I, I didn't really realize kind of what they did going in. I kind of wish I had looked them up a little more because I would have been down for seeing some more of their talks. Yeah, it was really fascinating. And they're out of North Carolina, too. I think they're based oh. out of either uh, Apex or Raleigh or both, or something like that. Cool. Yeah, very rad. 
Um, and uh, yeah, Retronauts. Let's talk about that real quick. Uh, so they did two live podcasts. Uh, one was with uh, Luke Edwards talking about the wizard. Uh, it was sort of like just an extended Q&A. Um, and they did one with Limited Run Games, uh, one of the reps from there. And uh, they talked about their business model. And they more specifically talked about Night Trap. Um, that game that they had, uh, that Limited Run had resurrected, and uh, I didn't know a whole lot about Night Trap. Like it didn't really register to me, like what exactly that was. But yeah. hearing them talk about it, um, it seemed like a game that is like stupidly, like, d- like it's stupidly nineties. Yeah, only, it's the product that of the nineties. More important than that, though, it's the game. That- that was basically responsible for the creation of the SRB. Yeah, exactly. And they, they went into that too and talked about, you know, that whole thing. And uh, it's definitely a big, big piece of video game history. And it's nice that Limited Run has been able to put that out and make it available, not only physically, but also on Steam as well, which is very, very nice. And I will also point out that Limited Run has also created the Blu-ray of the FMV sequences. If I'm correct, they actually got the original film that was shot on before it was digitized and made the Night Trap official Blu-ray, which actually I just Googled is out of stock. But if you can find a copy, I mean, it's a treat. Sweet. Sweet. Cool. All right. Um, anything else about guests you guys want to talk about? I think you pretty much covered everybody. Cool. Um, so panels, uh, I guess we will just jump in and talk about the panels that we did and, uh, I'll go ahead and go first. Um, I did, I only did one panel cause I was mostly stuck, you know, staffing and all of that. Um, uh, but I did my kingdom hearts panel again. I went back to the, uh, brief history of kingdom hearts model, um, where I have been doing, um, an extensive history of kingdom hearts as that panel, uh, for some time now, probably about the last year or so whenever I put it on and, um, it was it was kind of weird not to go through all of that material again, but I, I significantly cut back. Um, I basically only went through the development history of the first three games with uh, Kingdom Hearts 1, Chain of Memories, and Kingdom Hearts 2. And then sort of, you know, I wanted to make sure that the audience knew that I wasn't one of those Kingdom Hearts fans that's just like, the only games in the series are the first two and none of the other ones matter because that is, you know, demonstrably false. Um, they are all very important games to the franchise, and they all deserve their portion of the panel. So I made sure to make that clear, uh, even though I did not go into full detail with that. And then I went into more of like uh, sort of like the modern history of Kingdom Hearts, like what has been going on uh, in the franchise uh, related to Kingdom Hearts 3 and sort of where we are going in the future. And that was like the last uh, fourth of my panel, I guess, was more like looking towards the future of the series rather than sort of this info dump style, like this is what happened and then this is what happened sort of thing. And um, I used to not do that. I used to keep it like very strict, like Wikipedia style um, info dump for that panel, especially early on whenever I started doing it, because I've been doing this panel for as long as I've been doing panels. It's sort of my (laughs) magnum opus, if you will. Um, But I like to keep, you know, constantly changing it and I want the panel to be, you know, slightly different each time, you know, come up with a few new jokes and reuse some of the jokes that really land and uh, change out some of the content because uh, we're always finding out a few new interesting little tidbits about the development of the series and learning new stuff about where it's going in the future. And um, and uh, I just love that panel. It's uh, really great to put it on. 
and um, everybody seemed to really enjoy it. I don't think there were any repeats in the audience other than maybe you, Tobias. So well, no, um, I actually had not seen it before. Uh, oh, at really? The other, at the other conventions we've had, uh, there's been other things, and like I said, I'm not really a Kingdom Hearts fan, so like I didn't want to go in and spoil myself or anything. So I kind of like jumped in and just to see what what you got going, and I enjoyed it. Like uh, I, it was very informative to go see and see the original concept art, even to see the original trailers. Like kind of brought me back to like when I first heard about the game back in high school, uh, with a you know a really good friend, a nerd friend of mine was like, "Man, it's so great that Disney and the Square you get to see these Final Fantasy characters and Nikki like going at it and stuff, and that kind of really intriguing concept that got me interested in the first place. I'm not really a a huge Disney fan. Like I recognize their influence, but I've, I kind of like, that's another part of my childhood. And my, I guess my mom was really into it. And we went to Disney world a couple of times and I was kind of a little oversaturated with Disney as a child. So I kind of got out of it, uh, you know, getting a little older, but, uh, I know I really enjoyed the panel. I thought it was really informative to talk about the concept art stuff. You talked about it, the, the games and sort of how they, uh, evolved from the first one into the second and, you know, like the card game on the game boy advance and then things like that. I thought your 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 panel your slides were really well. Like some of the a lot of the jokes landed. Some of the little like tricks you used uh, were, were really well done. Like the slides weren't too basic or anything like that. Uh, I really enjoyed like the video at the end where you had the documentary of all the fans sort of expressing their love and uh, how it showed all those developers that just kind of like you know got really emotional seeing it. I thought that was a a nice interaction between the east and the west. Yeah, definitely. I love I love showing that documentary. Like it's just long enough and just short enough for me to be able to like fit it into a panel. And um, I'm just so grateful that they made that because it's it's just like a wonderful little piece of, you know, something you don't really see a whole lot of, which is fans getting to sort of like without any filter at all, without any barrier, just being able to like show off their appreciation for a franchise that they love directly to. Uh, well, almost directly to like their um, the people that made it, and just to see their reactions to it. So it's a really special little thing. I'm glad they made yeah. that. And yeah. uh, thank you for your your uh, very nice comments. I, I appreciate it a lot. And to go back to what you're saying about the the, the Wikipedia style thing, like, I think it is something that uh, I can see myself have having done in the past. Like the first time I gave my guy an X panel was just trying to get the information down to cover all their series. And even with the Pokemon panel that uh, I wrapped up this this time, it got really info dumpy. And if I'm going to revisit it maybe in a year or so, I really think I have to go back and talk some about more of the influence uh, as a whole rather than specific games and just going over, you know, fact after fact after fact. Yeah, definitely. Because it's easy to fall into that trap and feel like, oh, no, somebody is going to judge me for not knowing or talking about everything. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a problem I've run into. Like there's this idea that I've, I first heard from Charles Dunbar, this idea of the imposter syndrome, where you get the idea that when you show up, there's going to be somebody or everyone's going to know everything you already are going to say and more. Well, and actually, you're, you're going to forget. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we talk about like the well, actually, you're going to have that person that. I feel like it's easy to ignore because of their annoying, but it's more like the, the idea of a silent judgmental person that's going to just kind of roll their eyes at you and, and just, you know, say that you, they already know all this. They wasted their time. You're not really as smart as you think you are. But I saw a graph uh, a, a little while back, maybe about a month ago about the idea of the imposter syndrome. And it, the idea was that you have to cover what's what most people know a little bit of in a lot of different fields. So you're definitely going to repeat something that most everyone in the audience has heard before, but not everyone has heard everything. Yeah, um, for sure. So, yeah, that's something to sort of get over there. And, and honestly, 
since since hearing Charles Dunbar himself talk about in, dealing with imposter syndrome and seeing how awesome that guy presents and how knowledgeable he is, mm-hmm. if this awesome person can deal with this and still get these awesome panels, like that, that says a lot to my ability to do that as well. Yeah, for sure, definitely. Um, so we're approaching probably about the hour and a half mark, so we should probably think about wrapping it up real quick. So, uh, Sully, did you have anything to say about pan? Well, Tobias, we definitely need to need to get through your panels and talk about Sully's panel, but just wanted to throw that out, throw that out there in terms yeah. of a uh, a time mark. Right, right. And just so, I mean, as far as cutting, I'm sure there's a lot of little things and pauses that we can cut, so it'll probably be easier when we get the actual podcast done. Oh yeah, for sure. But uh, Sully, do you want to talk about your panel real quick, and then we'll wrap up with Tobias talking about his? Um, yeah, so my panel was Nintendo Outside Nintendo, and when I was first submitting panels for the con, you said you probably shouldn't submit a Zelda panel because, you know, Patrick Thorpe is there, and I was like, okay, challenge. Uh, one of my weird obsessions is just all the things Nintendo has done as part of merch merchandising and that's like including movies and tv shows and the ice capades you know all the things that most media goes through and so my panel was i i kept like redoing it because i was like finding more and more weird things that even i didn't know about like i had one or two things that were weird and obscure that i already knew and then there was like one or two things where i was like huh so i i basically instead of it being like an informative panel, it was almost entirely curated. So I went through each decade from the 80s until now, uh, focusing on anything other than video games Nintendo had done with their characters. So like the Super Mario Brothers Super Show and the Legend of Zelda cartoon and Captain N, but also things like Mario at the Ice Capades and King Koopa's cool cartoons and the Super Mario Challenge. (laughs) (laughs) you know all of these things that are just really weird and sort of like this is why nintendo was became so protective of their ip is every time they weren't you know we get terrible cartoons or um, two cereals in one bag two cereals (laughs) in one yeah in one box i love how the mario cereal is fruity flavor and the zelda cereal is berry flavor and i can't really figure out much of a difference other than well maybe the mario one has like a banana flavor and that's not technically a berry but but, (laughs) it's uh, but like yeah and i i got so much good feedback on that panel that i've decided to uh to kind of shop it around and take it to different cons and make it bigger because there's so much I had to cut that was weird, but I couldn't illustrate with a video or very easily visually, but I'm going to rise to the challenge and do that just because I feel like, um, I didn't want people to keep being, know what I'm talking about because, you know, But even though it's, you know, me and Tobias and Tori were in the little cafe area (laughs) of the the center watching it and laughing because of how ridiculous it is. But then something like, you know, Mario on Ice is so out there that no one's heard of it. And when they look at it, they just keep laughing and laughing and laughing. And that was my favorite part. But also there are good things I have in there. The the Mario anime from, I think it's 1986, 87, somewhere around there. Uh, It's one of my favorite pieces of animation from that era in Japan. It was uh, distributed by Toei to kind of give it some pedigree. And it's nice to show it to people and be like, Hey, there have been times when there have been like really good examples of 
uh, cross promotion with Nintendo and nice things have come out of it. And there's also been times where you get a man in a Bowser costume having his very own Johnny Karate style TV show. <laughs> um, did you? I don't think you did, but did you show that Kyari Pamu Pamu commercial for Nintendo? Oh, um, you should have. <laughs> I cut it because originally. I had a lot of commercials, but I kept cutting them because I didn't have a, a way of, sh- like, illustrating just a commercial. Like, I could say, oh, yeah, they did this, you know, Kari Pamu Pamu did a Nintendo thing, that's it. As opposed to saying, let me explain why Mario on Ice in 1989 seemed like a good idea. Um, right, right. And, so next and- time I want to, like find the weirder commercials from each decade and use those as part of my illustration of the time period. And I probably will use the KPP video for that. Yeah. 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 Cause I mean, most people, especially nowadays, they're probably going to know about the, the KPP video because they've probably seen it passed around on anime in anime groups on Facebook and, and whatnot. Um, so it, it'd be something neat to like reference, but you don't necessarily need to show something like that because it's probably already in the public consciousness anyway. And to be fair, in my last panel when I was talking about Nintendo teaming up with Illumination, I used the uh, Tuxedo Toon Link and Mario in a Tuxedo to illustrate like show business. So it, it's in there a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Makes sense. All right, Tobias, you want to talk about your panels, sir? Yeah, so very briefly here, we started off Saturday with uh, Train On, 20 Years of Pokemon, uh, the aforementioned Pokemon panel that kind of became an info dump near the end. As I, I primarily try to focus on the game series rather than the anime or any number of things. Uh, I see a lot of Pokemon panels at anime cons, and they, they tend to focus on like the franchise as a whole or the fan culture. But uh, I've always been like uh, like the majority video game player with those, and I felt like you know reading into Snow Power back in the day and really enjoying the the early beginnings of uh, this franchise is really what I wanted to touch back into. Uh, so like early on, I talked about uh, my own experience having. Uh, experienced the Pokemon boom in middle school and how it kind of died off by high school. But then you get into college and suddenly everyone's playing Pokemon again on the DS. And uh, there was a really awesome fan video which circulated last year that just shows this this kid playing these games, uh, you know, huddled under the covers with his Game Boy and the flashlight. But then we see him grow up and clock into work. And then he passes by this GameStop that's got a Sun and Moon poster. And you can you can see him gulp and almost tear up as he sees this and he gets to experience his youth again, and how that that's pretty much been me. Every time a new Pokemon game comes out, I I get to relive a little bit of my childhood, which is really what I wanted to to push through in the panel as a whole. But uh, pretty much from then on, it became just sort of an explanation of the games when they were developed, the interesting development tidbits that may have been lost to time. I showed a lot of the original concept art which I had never seen before researching this panel. So it was cool to see what was kept, what wasn't kept, and how things sort of evolved from being a more traditional RPG with you know, swords and, and weapons and a charisma stat into the games that we know and love. And, cool. and uh, so that, that's pretty much Pokemon here. It's probably the last time I'm going to run it for a little bit. Uh, this past year, I did a lot of 20 years of panels. Mm-hmm. 19, like, 1996 and 7 were pretty big years uh, at least for franchises that I care about uh, so I, I did that I'm probably going to let that go for a little bit uh, unless I decide to sort of revisit it as a whole and redo it next year 30 years of Gunbuster 
Oh, man. Oh, man. We got to do that. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's uh, aim for the top. On... <laughs> and then on Sunday, let's see. I started off with uh, Get In or Get Out, uh, 20 Years of the N64, which, uh, like, the, the general thesis for that is when we think of retro gaming, we always focus on 8-bit and 60-bit art. So you'll see that, and like if you go on Steam and search for pixel graphics, uh, if you go on YouTube and just search for 8-bit aesthetic or chiptunes and that kind of thing, you see a lot of representation from the 8-bit world and even the 16-bit world that a lot of people tend to confuse with 8-bit. But you don't see a lot for like the 32, 32-bit or 64-bit stylings of the simple polygons of the N64, which makes sense. But on the other hand, it's 20 years old now, and these games are like you know old enough to buy cigarettes. Barely old enough to buy drinks, alcohol. And so I really wanted to focus on like my own nostalgic experience uh, through these games. Uh, the few times I've run it before, the first time I did Animes Met, like I had an entire ballroom that was just cheering with every game that I, I kind of showed off, remembering playing Smash Brothers and Star Fox and everything there. So outside of like the original talk with the development and this nostalgia, I go over just some of the major games, just kind of show a little clip talk about the development, what was interesting uh, about them, what sort of legacies they, uh, you know, have left us with. And there's a lot we don't think about. We think about, you know, the advent of 3D gaming. Uh, no other controller up to that point had had a analog circular pad. Uh, Nintendo had just had the one, of course. Uh, we did, Of course, we didn't have the twin stick style that we have now, but that's something that sort of came about because of the limitations of the N64. We, we think about rumble, you know, the vibration features in every controller we have now. Uh, Nintendo really popularized that if they didn't admit it outright. You know, there was a big copyright issue a couple of years back when that was Nintendo and some of the original creators of the the rumble feature. But it's just ubiquitous. Like every controller has, has that now. So there's a lot of legacy in the that, that console, that generation, that I think it's important to go back and at least acknowledge. Because you have a lot of people that sort of clown on that era for not aging very well, at least graphically, which I can admit, like a lot of the games sort of look very basic. The textures or lack of textures uh, make it look very basic and the polygons are very triangular. But uh, it's still a very important era of gaming as a whole. I mean, I don't know how anybody can really say that it didn't age well. I mean, I think it ages just as well as any of the like 2D stuff. It's just a different style. And I think I like the, the, the usually the way I open the panel up is by saying, uh, you know, I'm doing this panel because I was born in 1986. And by that, I mean, I'm stuck between like these old school gamers that grew up playing the NES primarily and then not getting the 64 until they were like well into like, you know, high school or even out of high school. But I'm also young enough to have experienced that first time. I'm I, 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 in this case, like I'm quote unquote a millennial, but there's a lot of ways what I don't feel like I fit with that generation, but there's a lot of ways which I do feel like I fit in that generation. And I feel I'm I'm in this liminal state between these two age groups and these two groups of whether the old or the new school gaming that I can appreciate both the older stuff uh, in fandom and also the newer generation as well. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then uh, lastly, wrapped up uh, my convention panel experience with Lilat Saga, uh, the history of the Star Fox series of games. Uh, so as I introduced with that, uh, I, I came up with this about a year or two ago. I wanted to do a video game panel, but not something about a series that everyone's already done, like Zelda or Mega Man. I've seen a lot of those at conventions. So uh, Star Fox was an early series of uh, you know of, of mine that 
hasn't really gotten a lot of love, and some of the more recent games have gotten a lot of derision. So I wanted to go through and touch upon the development there about the Super FX chip and the, the leaps in technology that we got with the Star Fox series. Uh, talk about the newer games as well and show some just a couple, a couple little fan videos and fan works to show that, you know, Fox isn't just a character in Smash Brothers that everyone overuses. He's, you know, come from a series that hopefully one day Nintendo will revive in a glorious fashion. I'm sure right after they introduce a new Metroid game that'll win everybody over again, but we'll see what if that happens. I love that puppet video so much. Like I had seen gifts and screen caps from it, but I don't think I had ever seen it like in person. Yeah. Um, like it's, all the way through before I came to your panel. It's just so charming. I yeah. love it. it. It is golden. There's a lot of little things in their visual gags. Like I really like the cameraman. His reaction is <laughs> yes. just like the, the the whole timing is just really perfect. It really is, man. Yeah, and um, I think that that was the only panel of yours that I got to kind of duck in on because the other right. two I just missed because of of oh, yeah. staffing. But um, you know, popping into that Star Fox panel, I thought it, I thought it was really interesting. It um, I didn't really know a lick of Star Fox information, and just uh, you know, um, seeing the way that you presented it made it made it really fascinating and interesting, and especially seeing all those uh, scenes of like the um like that original engine, like transferring all those, like, um, what was it? The, uh, the 3d graphics into sprites. Yeah. Like, yeah. and I just thought that was really, really fascinating. And it, you can see how that, um, was influenced by that star Wars arcade game that you mentioned. And then yeah. went on to like, sort of be the standard of like 3d style, like environments, uh, later on and very early, like grandfather of that kind of game. Oh yeah. Well, you look at like the, the, the Super Nintendo, especially, was kind of like clutched together with a bunch of various technology. So we have like the Super FX chip sort of, you know, tacked on to add 3D graphics. We do, you look at Star Fox and the 3D graphics are very apparent, but then you've got like Yoshi's Island, which used that chip as well in very subtle ways and doesn't really come off as being a 3D in your face style like Star Fox does, but it's still using a little bit of these disparate technologies sort of jammed together to make a, a whole experience. Yeah, very, very cool. And all that right. pretty much wraps me up there. Um, do we want to talk about Tori's panel at all? or? Oh, yeah. Um, Tori will uh, be on the next episode, and uh, maybe we can talk about it there. But I guess we'll quickly address it. Uh, Tori did a kind of like a um, clip show and a little bit of uh, background information on a collection of uh, horror movies that she really or horror games that right. she really enjoys. And uh, like Fatal Frame and uh, Silent Hill. And um, I'll just let her speak more to that uh, whenever she's in on the next one. We'll, we'll get her two cents on that. Cool. And uh, last two things that I wanted to go over real quick. Uh, we had two really big and very, very cool uh, musical acts at Super Famicom. Yes. Uh, one of them was the uh, opening ceremonies uh, with the um, Asheville uh, or the App State uh, video game music ensemble. And right. uh, they did a like uh like a 30 minute show or something like that maybe it was a little bit longer um sort of like opening up the convention and getting people excited for video games they did a wind waker medley and they did a kingdom hearts medley and um i unfortunately missed the wind waker medley but i did pop in uh during the kingdom hearts medley and that just like it it melted my soul and it was <laughs> it was beautiful and uh that whole ensemble is extraordinarily talented 
And um, I put up a clip of the uh, of part of the Kingdom Hearts medley up on our uh, Facebook page, um, and you guys can check that out there. Um, it's like a nine minute like video of a portion of the uh, of the Kingdom Hearts uh, bit, and hopefully there's some footage floating out around there of like the full thing plus the Wind Waker medley as well. And they were really really cool. Yes, yes, it was very good. I think uh we we had our two separate favorite games there and the two medleys but i think you and yeah, i had the same right. reaction to those and i was like going in and seeing the one waker one and you don't really think too much about it but uh you know hearing that music again and hearing it played in front of you it's just ah words cannot describe yeah for sure there's something really unique about experiencing that like with a live orchestra just like being there it's very 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 awesome and um, then there was another musical act that was sort of like closed out the event on Saturday night, which was a uh, heavy metal group called Console Command. Uh, they're based out of Durham, I believe. And uh, they're essentially their whole thing is that they do heavy metal covers of video game music. And um, I uh, spoke to them for a little bit after their show and uh, they were all super nice. And um, they played a huge collection of, uh, of video game music like. Uh, some of the tracks that stood out to me whenever I popped in there, because again, I wasn't there for the full show, uh, but they sh- they played that one really iconic track that everybody loves from Undertale. Yes, the Sans theme. Yeah, the Sans theme. That's yes. really good. Uh, their rendition of it was awesome. Yes, I enjoyed and, that. And they played the Pokemon Route 1 theme, I believe that was the one they did. It, it was a medley of a bunch of different songs, but yeah, it included like Route 1 and Lavender yeah. Town. Yes, the Lavender Town bit was cool, and I don't think people expected that. Like some people <laughs> were just like, "Oh my gosh, that's cool!" And uh, they played uh, one that stood out to me and really tickled my nostalgia bone was they played uh, Genova from Final Fantasy VII. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I adore that track. It's it's awesome, and it's um, it's one of those songs. Like I think the entire Final Fantasy VII soundtrack really lends itself well to either like full orchestral pieces or heavy metal it's just one of those um, soundtracks that can be done in really any musical style and sound great um and what was it that they closed out on was that the pokemon medley i think it was i think i recall like lavender towns were the closing things out yeah yeah i think that was it but yeah they were great um i'm super excited to see because they do a lot of shows around in the in the in the triad in the triangle area and uh, I have to go out there and, and check them out at some point um, awesome. in one of their full shows because they were great. They were awesome. All right. Um, anything else anybody wants to bring up or address? I mean, I think we talked a lot about uh, like the, the uh, thoughts for next year. We're pretty much covered earlier with the RCC, I think. That uh, was the yeah. last thing we wanted to talk about initially. Overall, I mean, I I enjoyed it. But like I said in the article, I think most of that was because like I was there to see you guys and because I was there to present my own stuff. Mm-hmm. If I just come in on the street, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much, uh, not being a tournament fan myself. But if like if it had been me as I am now, I know that I would have submitted some panels and stuff for next year. I had I, um, for me, I kind of feel a little bit... Um, the opposite i guess and that right now my attendance for next year is uh leaning about 80 percent towards no uh as someone who is very like openly casual about gaming i i unless they have more material that's going to bring me as someone who's just a fan of of 
of video game series as opposed to the competition aspect, I, I don't really see much of a point in going. And I feel like unless the con part gets more of a boost, I, I really don't have a lot of need to attend. What if a King Dedede is there? Then, of course, I shall drop everything and go see my second favorite Kirby character, Mr. I-Know-Everything-About-Sully. <laughs> you can always give a panel on King DDD, like the life and times of... Like, I would, like, that's the thing, it's like, <laughs> I only submitted one panel, but now I was like, hey, I could write a Kirby panel, I would love to do a Kirby panel, and then, like, what, you know, I'd get people to show up, yeah, but, like, it kind of hurt my feelings when the, the feedback panel, when I brought, like, hey, the con part could need a little more love than the tournament part. I mean, not saying that it needs more, but it could be boosted up to that level. And it's like, the answer I got was, we'll go see the tournament. They think it's really exciting. You would too. And I'm like, okay. And I did, I did, I at the last matches of the Smash Bros. tournament went and I watched it with Andrew, who was with us, your brother. And mm -hmm. we were like, yeah, this is kind of exciting, but I can still say it was exciting and I had a little fun, but it's not my cup of tea. So my challenge is, hey, if you want me to go down there, why don't they come up here and like cosplay or go to a panel or buy something like the vendors are complaining about? So like it's it's it goes both ways. Yeah, I don't think anybody would fight you on that. So I, uh, I think you're I think you're you're definitely right on. But um. I think it's the whole idea of like you know us as nerds. Uh, you know, we definitely get stuck in our own little in our, in our own little niche, and yeah. and that's fine. Um, and I think that that you can't like no no one can enjoy everything, and no one can enjoy everything in the same way. But I th also think it's important to like learn that perspective of like, well, at least I understand why you know other nerds enjoy this particular expression. And I think that was the idea behind it. Right. I don't. I don't think he was trying to like you know, call you out or tell you, like, you know, go up to the tournament, watch the tournaments, participate in the tournament. It's just kind of like, if he's kind of on the spot, he's got to make a, he's got to say something that's not going to insult either side of the, the argument there. I mean, it comes down to seeing what they actually do insofar as, like, catering to the cultural aspect next year. I My hopes are high. If they drop the ball next year, and I imagine they won't, because uh, we've got, you know, the primary staffer, participating in this podcast not just listening to it and low yeah but uh, you know if, if the ball is dropped next year pretty pedically and i don't i could see myself not going but i i think that there's a lot of good potential there i feel like they kind of have a good head on their shoulders or a couple heads on their collective shoulders uh to make it work whether or not they decide to push it instead of the money making money making tournament aspect i mean that that still is kind of up up to you know up to see and I guess so. I guess we'll see next year, the third year, to see kind of how how they move forward with that. Indeed. I, I mean, I will say, like, as someone who's who works for Arc and has seen them since year one, like year two for Arc was a big change with the change in menu, and there's been a lot of change there. So I can kind of see like a shift in influence, and especially the shift in influence that you know these secondary staffers and volunteers can exert over the heads, you know, with with enough. With enough reasoning, so I I can see some room for potential. I I mean, like I said, I was definitely a little disappointed. Yeah, I kind of like you in that I, I don't really care for tournament stuff, but again, room for potential, room for upward upward mobility. Indeed. All right. Well, anything else before we wrap up? I think that does us. All right, guys. Well, uh, thank you both so much for uh, joining this episode. I really appreciate all of your wonderful thoughts and opinions on uh, 
all of the topics that we covered today. And uh, you both are wonderful to have on the show. So thank you. And it's wonderful to be here. Yeah. And uh, I guess that will do it for us. Uh, if you guys want to hear uh, more podcasts from Third Impact Anime, um, please make sure to follow us on iTunes and Google Play. And we're also on Stitcher now, so that's a thing. And uh, you can just find us by searching uh, Third Impact Anime on any of those things. Uh, we also have a Facebook page and a WordPress that you can find um, at facebook.com slash third impact anime i think but i'm not sure if that's exactly the url but it'll it'll be in the description you can find it there or just search it in the search bar and you can find us and uh, in terms of the wordpress where we're putting up a bunch of uh articles etc on different topics um bill just wrote a review of tokyo idols it's a documentary on netflix about um idol culture in japan um, that he wrote a short review of. And I know Sully is working on a few big pieces that are going to come out soon. And um, I've, I've got some things coming out. And uh, Tobias has his, uh, his personal convention report uh, up on that website as well. And I've got, and, an uh, I've got an idea, bro. Back of my head. Cool, cool. We'd love to hear it soon. Um, and uh, Tobias, where can they find you? So, uh, well, I mean, you can find me on Third Impact Anime. I just hey. have a fresh new article there. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, on, with, uh, on Facebook, I've got Reverend Tobias as my sort of convention uh, hub, I, I guess, info page. On Twitter, I'm at Reverend underscore Tobias. Uh, and speaking of Twitter, uh, you know, at Third Impact Anime should be open. It should be. Um, I'm going to have to talk to Sully on that one. Uh, Sully says pass. Pass. <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I'd like, at, like, a, I'd like to buy a bow. I mean, buy a bow. I don't. I don't um, think at passes is open. That seems like a probably pretty, pretty common. Yeah, but uh, yeah. at third effect animation should be open. So if you want to, you know, you want to use that for for advertising your podcast specifically. I know so far you've got a link to your personal uh, URL. But it may be a good idea to get that for easily shareability. You know, I agree. Not like I was trying to share some, you know, podcast earlier and would be direct to your page. It might be a little easier, maybe a little more, um, I don't know, streamlined to do it that way. I will write that and put that in the suggestion box and maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll get one of those one of those twits. Don't you um, uh, like monitor the suggestion box? Um, yes, it's my brain. <laughs> But, um, yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at Bebop Shock. It's spelled like it sounds, like Cowboy Bebop and Bioshock together. And where can they find you, Sully? Uh, you can find me at Calvacun. That is C-A-L-V-A. Usually an underscore K-U-N. It depends on the, the uh, format. I'm usually just on Twitter. That's the best place to get me. Cool, cool. All right, guys. Well, I think that does it. And uh, thank you all so much for tuning in and listening to this fairly long podcast. But we covered a lot. And I think it was all very important, very constructive content that we talked about today. So uh, thanks again, guys. And we'll see you in the next one.